We are an intentionally simple church, and we are after intentionally simple things, first and foremost, Jesus and the way He wants us to be. Um, so one of the things that we do is that we're after five main things that we do with our life uh, as a people of God together. Word, worship, community, witness, and renewal. Um, word. We're Bible people. We believe God's Word. We believe every word of His Bible. We aim to preach it, live it, believe it, and live it out. Um, in addition to that, witness, uh, pardon me, worship. We seek for our whole lives to be a living sacrifice to the Lord Jesus Christ. We seek everything we do as a people together to glorify God, whether it's Bible study or community group or Sunday gathering. Uh, community, we seek to be a people who love one another, serve one another, know one another, a place where people are known and loved and know and love, where people are served and being served, a place where people, a people, where people are helping other people follow Jesus. In addition to that, witness. We live in Seattle to tell people that Jesus reigns. And Jesus has come to make people right with God through his cross, through his blood, through his sacrifice. Uh, and renewal. We want to see the city changed. Uh, the Good Samaritan parable doesn't address the spiritual needs of the Good Samaritan. It, it addresses actual physical needs. So we seek to do those things. Uh, we do that in a number of ways, uh, which you can find out about more. But that's, that's just a little bit about who we are if this is your first time with us. Um, I'm going to pray for us. Uh, I find myself approaching a text on a particularly tricky text perhaps, uh, maybe not particularly tricky, but um, it's not without awareness of what's happening, particularly in South Carolina right now with the brothers and sisters at Emmanuel, uh, that I approach a text that says, do not be surprised when the world hates you. Um, so let's pray for them as they meet this Sunday for the first time since the violence they experienced. Um, but it's also been an interesting week approaching a text like this and thinking about them. And so let's pray. Jesus, Jesus, you reign. Jesus, you reign. You are sovereign King over everything. And we meet now and come together to worship you here in Seattle because you reign. And we live as your people because you reign. And we live with confidence in you and the forgiveness that we've experienced through your body broken and bloodshed for our sins, <coughs> excuse me, because you reign. Jesus, you reign. And I pray that that truth would just continue to be reality for the brothers and sisters in South Carolina, particularly those who are closest to the, the tragedy, but for the church there all together. And for us as we approach this text, that we would know what it is to love you and serve you and, and exist for you here in this city. Jesus, we love you and pray these things for your glory and for our joy and in your name, Jesus Christ, amen. Uh, my assumption is this, that if you moved to Seattle or if you're from Seattle, you didn't, you didn't move here to have um, a church versus the city life or, or a church versus the world life or a us versus them life. Uh, you didn't move to Seattle to hunker down and have a nice, safe, clean, uh, sanitized, Christian, hermetically sealed life away from anything that wasn't Christian at all. Uh, of course, Paul in 1 Corinthians 5 tells us to do that. You're going to have to leave the planet. But nonetheless, there are places that are perhaps safer or more hermetically sealed than others. Um, but my feeling is that you, you moved to Seattle, if you moved to Seattle, and, and most of us did move to Seattle. Four out of five people are not from here. Uh, who live here. I know some of us were born here, uh, but many of us weren't. Um, but that when you moved to Seattle, maybe you moved for a job, maybe you moved for school, maybe you moved because you wanted to live somewhere where people needed Jesus. 
Uh, you moved here to live and exist in a place where you knew people needed him, needed to hear the truth about him. Or maybe you lived here as a normal Seattleite and you met him and now you're here. I was living in Seattle when I met Jesus, well, in and around Seattle when I met Jesus. You didn't move here to have a church versus the city mentality. You didn't, you didn't move here to have an us versus them. I live and exist in Seattle to tell my neighbors the best news I've ever heard in my entire life. The best news that I've ever heard is that God so loved the world that His Son, Jesus Christ, despite the fact that I was living in a rebellion and opposition to Him, entered into human history and died on a cross to make me right with a God who I did not love. And that that news means that I don't have to do anything to earn God's love, but to receive it and to believe it and to know Jesus and be His people. And that's the best news that I've ever heard. And I live here so that the people who live on my street might hear that news. And I'm here right now to tell you these things that you might hear that news and that other people might hear that news because that's the best news I've ever heard. Because Jesus reigns. Because He rules. Because He's alive. 2015. We inherit a bit of a climate, I think, uh, with, a, with, which a, with a felt growing hostility towards Bible-believing people. Uh, I don't think I have to go far to point to it. Um, as much as we're not seeking to have a um, us versus them mentality, right now there's a sense of a them versus us mentality uh, that we must navigate. And there's lots of different ways Christians in history have tried to navigate this problem or this issue. Uh, but I think the answer we find to navigating this hostility in the Bible is so fresh and so unique and so radical in what John has to tell us today that it's divine. This is an otherworldly way to handle hostility. So let's, let's look at three things today. We're going to look at three things. One, what, what we are up against. Two, how do we navigate it? And three, um, how do we thrive rather than survive? How do, we, how do we live as a robust, life-filled Jesus people rather than hunkering down with our helmets and moving off to a compound somewhere where we're nice and safe away from all the sin until we're there in the compound together and realize we brought a bunch of sin with us and it all collapses in on itself. And so to avoid that, let us figure out how we thrive in the city before we go any further down that particular road. Um, so the three things we're looking at, what are we, what are we up against? Uh, two, how do we navigate it? And three, how do we thrive rather than survive as a church? Okay, so we're in 1 John. We're in uh, chapter 3, starting in verse 10. I'm really getting after the middle of verse 10, but I'll start at the top. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Two teams. This is what John's done. He's done this again and again. He bifurcates the situation. There are people who are for Jesus. There are people who are against Jesus. By this evidence, who are the children of God and those who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. Now, John will so clearly define for us righteousness that I'm going to leave that on the table. And you just kind of have to put a, put a little finger in your mind on that page and we'll come back to it. Righteousness. But what, what you really need to know about is we're talking about God's righteousness here, not what's trendy and hip righteousness uh, in 2015, because it turns out it doesn't take long to realize that what is righteous in 2015 wasn't righteous in 1995, uh, nor was it righteous in 1975. Uh, in 1965, the idea of recycling your aluminum cans was crazy, right? 
now in Seattle at least, maybe not in styrofoam checking uh, other states, but in Seattle, if you take a can and you go to put it in a garbage can, and I'm not saying you should do this, you want to be a good steward of God's things, um, man, people while out. No! Don't do it! Where do you put your bacon grease if you don't put it in a can in the garbage can, right? Down your pipes? Well, then you wreck your pipes, and then you got more garbage because you got to tear your pipes out, right? It's a lesser evil. I digress. Whoever does not practice righteousness, now that's God's righteousness, is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Verse 11. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning. Do we remember this? If you've been tracking along with us, you've been reading 1 John, he said this again and again and again, and he keeps cycling back around. Whenever he says something that he said before, that's when you should think to yourself, maybe the next thing he's about to say is important. Because it is. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, Genesis 4, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Verse 13. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. We have several things to unpack here. Um, But John is taking us back to Genesis 4, the story of the first murder that ever happened, uh, where Cain murders his brother. Now, uh, at the end of the day, what he tells us is that Cain murders his brother because his acts, his brother's acts were righteous and his were not. And, and you may have heard, if you spend any time studying Genesis, you may have heard people break it down and say, well, you know, Cain, if you look at the story, you can read it at home when you go home today, because you're hopping to read Genesis 4. It's really good. It's amazing stuff. Genesis 1 through 11, one of my favorite sections. Anyways, so uh, Cain offers grain and produce, and Abel offers animals. And some have said, see, look, God liked Abel's stuff better. But that's not the context of Genesis, nor what John says here. It's not about what was offered. It's about his heart. Uh, He was after his own stuff. Abel loved God and wanted to give God his best stuff. Cain hmm, felt kind of obligated. He should. He was shooting all over the place. I should do this sacrifice thing because God uh, is doing the thing. And God comes to him and speaks to him and says, hey, man, doesn't say man, by the way, but the remix. Hey, sin is crouching at your door. Sin is about to get you. you you're falling apart here. And what does Cain do? He, he hates his brother. And what does he say? He murders his brother. Now, why is John talking about this? Where did this story come from? It sort of feels a little random, doesn't it? Well, listen to it again. For this is the message you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. This is what it is to follow God. That we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one. That's the other team. The two sides, the bifurcation. So so Cain uh, is sort of an emblem and a symbol of what it is to be someone who is not following God at this point in time. Cain, who was of the evil one, murdered his brother. Why? Self-centered, self-serving. Who is Abel? Abel is God-centered. Abel is other-centered. 
On Team Jesus, we live a life that is centered around loving God and loving others. It's an other-centered life. Uh, the world has us hearkening us back to a self-centered life where you have to take care of number one or you won't make it in the world. You have to look out for number one. It's survival of the fittest out there. It's dog-eat-dog. -dog. You have to succeed. You have to try harder. You have to do more or you won't make it and it doesn't matter who you step on because if you don't step on people, you won't make it. Okay? Team one, team two. Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Okay, so what we are looking at is what we are up against. I think this actually encapsulates exactly what we are up against uh, in the next verse. And, and so here, he makes the switch. 13. So you've got to follow. You've got to almost have to like, put pins in where John is going because you'll miss it. So, so this is what's happening with Cain. All of a sudden he says, Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you because you're on team one. Cain and the like are on team two. Why? 14. We know that we have passed out of death and into life because we love the brothers. You're alive in Christ because you're living an other-centered life. It's evidential of the fact that you know and love Jesus. And he's so linking it and tying it, and he'll continue to do this in chapter 4. He'll do this over and over and over again. That you can't vote for Jesus and for sin at the same time. You can't vote for Team You and Team Jesus at the same time. It's one or the other. It's binary. You cannot love God and money. Jesus is going to say things like this, right? You cannot serve idols in God. You can't hate your brother and love God, is what John is also going to tell us. It's binary. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Team life. Team death. So what are we up against? The reality is that you and I as Christians, if you are a Christian, are not on board with the program of the world. You and I are not on board with a survival of the fittest, dog-eat-dog, -dog, self-centered program, if you're in God's program, if you're in God's ways and doing God's stuff. Cain represents that, that program. The me first, right? The me first, the gimme, gimme generation of the world who's after their own stuff. But that's radically opposed to and diametrically opposed to and bifurcated off from what it is to love and follow and serve Jesus. Because the reality is when you know that Jesus reigns, you can make great sacrifices to help other people, to know other people, to love other people, to serve other people. You can give away stuff when you're like, well... You know, I have these two coats, and I might need that other coat later. Now, my brother in Christ, he needs a coat. And I look silly wearing two coats, but I think I will keep my other coat because you never know what might happen on a rainy day. That's how the world thinks. What does John the Baptist say about that? You have two tunics. If you have two tunics, give one of your tunics away. Two coats look silly on you. This is Washington. All you need is a hoodie. <laughs> In June or December. <clears throat> so the deal is, though, that, that Abel 
by his very existence, stood in opposition to the program. He stood in opposition to the program by being someone who loved God. And how did Cain respond? He kills him. Because the reality is, is that with Cain and with Abel, Abel's life, and I think this is true of the church in 2015, those are being faithful to Jesus and his word, Abel stood as an indictment against Cain. How? Did Abel go and tell God, hey God, Cain's got a bad heart, right? He's, he didn't go sin snipering him, right? He's got a bad heart, he doesn't have a good disposition, Lord. God knew. God knows everything. Abel just loved God. Abel was just faithful and did what God said. And his very life, as it was, was an indictment against Cain and his self-centered, God-not-loving life. Poor grammar. God-not-loving life? So Abel stands in a, as an indictment. And I think um, John has in mind two kinds of people. We'll call them non-Christians and not-Christians. And I understand I'm about to say something a little polemic. There's something between the lines, and I will unpack it. It will grow more polemic as I unpack it. There's non-Christians. There's those who are outside of the church who don't like the church. Yes? Yes. Uh, there are those who don't like what we believe about the Bible, correct? Correct, right? This is not a hotly debated thing. Uh, we have been very comfortable in Christendom. We are on the other end of Christendom where we had sort of a uh, very, very friendly host society for the church, if you will. Uh, we lived in a time and a place where most people agreed that what the Bible said about morality, uh, what was good and bad and right and wrong, was about right, whether they were a Christian or not. We had a very amicable, as the church, had a very amicable host society. Right? I'm not saying we need to return to something. I'm not saying whatever. I, I, I honestly think, uh, and I want to be careful here, we got very comfortable in that as the church. It's a very comfortable host society. Now, in 2015, the host society is not as amicable as it once was. That's okay. That's the way it was for the church for a very long time. That's the way it is for the brothers and sisters around the world. Um, that's the way it was for God's people a, a lot. Uh, in exile. Um, this is not new. This is not new. Now, I think the other thing that we really have to deal with are the not Christians. There are a number of people doing a number of things in the name of Jesus, saying things like people who believe the Bible are wrong and need to change their ways and calling themselves Christians. There are a number of people who don't believe Jesus and don't believe his word and they're even using parts of his word, parts of his word, to say people like us, if you're a Christian, and if you're joining us today, this is who you're amongst. We believe the Bible. We believe Jesus. We believe what he said. Now, there's several, several authors who don't need to be named who call themselves Christians who have gone another way to say things like, well, you know, Christians only believe parts of the Bible. They choose what they want to believe and not want to believe. And so we should choose the right progressive, right-minded things to believe and get rid of the rest. Bless you. Now, there's a lot of wrong with that. There's a lot of wrong with that. But there's whole books being written to say, no, no, no. You can be this and that. You can be this and that. And these guys need to grow up and stop being like this. So not only do we have oppression from those who would say they're outside, but we have oppression from those and persecution for those inside claiming to be Christians. And this is no different than what John is dealing with. 
And he's going to put this all under the big umbrella of the world. We believe Jesus. We believe his word. This is what we're up against. We live in a time and a place where um, we're being pushed to conform, to catch up to this, so to speak. Um, the cake shop in Portland, which is so famous now, they're being fined $150,000, and the Labor Department there is saying, because we're not trying to hurt this business because they don't agree with us on what marriage is. We want to reform them. We want to change them. We want them to bend to our societal rules. you got to play. If, if you're in society, you got to play by society's rules. This is nothing new for the people of God. This happened uh, uh, to the Jewish exiles in, in Egypt. Uh, this happened uh, as the Greeks conquered uh, Israel. This happened again and again through the history of the people of God. This has happened in the history of the church for 2,000 years. This has happened over and over and over again. And faithful people who love God for thousands of years have said, I am a citizen of God. I belong to God. I believe His Word. And I will stand for this. Now what's interesting for us as the people of God, as Christians in 2015, is the good news of the gospel is that our Lord and Savior came and lived and died in our place. He took hostility from people as God. He could have crushed to bleed and die to pay the price to make them and us right with God. That is the truth of the gospel, which means when we face persecution, when the church faces this, we do not respond in kind. We respond contra to the world. Our Lord and Savior said, turn the other cheek. Go the second mile. Right? We turn the other cheek. We go the second mile. The Bible says crazy things to the world. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemies, and pray for those who persecute you. Now, who did we learn that from? God who died to make his enemies friends, and God who from on the cross, Jesus Christ, cried out to his heavenly Father, if you will, in prayer, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. I, I, the Bible is all divine. It's all from heaven. Uh, I always want to be careful with red-letter Bibles. The red letters are not more holy particularly when you get into the fact that there's a couple of places where those may or may not, should, should, should or should not be in quotes. Um, so you got to be careful with the red light. You can have one. It's fine and it's great. I have them. I, I use them. Um, but I, I'm hard-pressed to think of a statement that stands out more in my mind to prove Jesus' divinity than him dying on the cross, saying, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And this is what we're in, and this is our posture now. They, they want us to conform. We won't. But we do it in a way that's different. We don't move out to the, uh, the compound, right? We love. The world hates and the church loves. The world hates and the church loves. Now, what's amazing about this is we shouldn't be surprised. Um, if you go with me to John chapter 15... 
If you read John 15, it's fascinating because it's clear that John has his own writing in mind as he's writing to me anyways, that he's, as he's writing um, 1 John 3, where we've been. Uh, John 15, starting in verse 18. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember, uh, the world, uh, remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they would also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on the account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. That's God. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without cause. We live in a time and a place where we have this idea and this ethos that says this. You can do whatever you want to do as long as it doesn't hurt anybody else. <clears throat> Unless you're a Christian. Unless you believe the Bible. You can do whatever you want to do as long as it doesn't hurt anybody else. Unless you believe God's word and abide by it. Because the definition of doing what you're going to do and not hurting anybody else is the people who turn the other cheek, who go the second mile, who love their enemies and pray for those who persecute them. By definition, that is people who are minding their own business uh, and, and are loving others and aren't hurting anybody by doing so. So how do we navigate it? John tells us, fortunately. Verse 16. Uh, By this we know love. Fascinating, isn't it? His response to how we deal with hostility in the world is love. By this we know love. That he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our life for the brothers. This is what a church is supposed to do. We're a people who are responding to the reality that Jesus Christ laid his life down for us, and so therefore we laid down our life for each other. Now, as it always is in these cases, just like in uh, Ephesians when it says, Husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church, laying his life down for her. That doesn't only mean when you can take a bullet for the team, literally. It means having your whole life be organized in such a way that it's other-centered. That, that your job as a husband, is what Ephesians after, is to be the servant-hearted leader of your home. To lead by serving. To lead by laying your life down. To lead in generosity. To lead in kindness. To lead your family uh, in loving your wife more than the bass boat. I always use the bass boat because I don't think we have any bass fishermen in Anchor Church. And we don't want to put anybody on the spot. The Holy Spirit does that. Now, of course, if you're a bass fisherman and the Holy Spirit's talking to you, that's between you and him, not between you and me. But I digress. By this we know love. This is what love looks like. This is love. That he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives to the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Warning if you are living a selfish, self-centered life, this is a warning. 
if you never, ever, ever lay down your life in any way for other believers in Christ, this is a warning. If you don't care for those who are without and are in need, this is a warning. By this we know love, that He laid down His life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods, okay, it's Father's Day, which means I will take this as my license to do something I don't normally do. I'm going to really nerd out about the Greek for just a second. And I'll tell you why I don't nerd out about the Greek that often. A, I want you to know that the number one thing I've learned in my training in learning Greek and Hebrew is that your Bible in your hands, if you've got an ESV, an ANASB, a Holman, is awesome. And they've done a very good job. And you don't need to be concerned about some guy on PBS saying, well, if you really knew what it said. Like John's Gospel in particular, or First John in particular, he's a fisherman. He writes fisherman Greek. Everything I just said is pretty much what it says in the Greek, even why it's confusing sometimes. You're like, what? That is a horrible sentence construct. Yeah. So what? He doesn't care. He's writing the Bible. Are you? <laughs> um, but two things happen here. Okay, and I'll only do this because you know these words. You know they're cognates in English. There's two words that just showed up here that should have been a boop, 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 red light to you if you were a Greek reader. He used the word bias and the word pasuxi. Those are fun to say, right? Pasuxi. Uh, now you're learning some Greek. Pasuxi is where we get the word psyche, psychology, and bias is the word where we get biology. Biology. Now, why is this important? Because we know that we, uh, we know this, and we, in this we know love, that he laid down his life, his pasuxi. Now, pasuxi doesn't just mean his biological life. It really means like inner soul, self. Uh, the Hebrew is going to use the word heart. The you that is you, the seat of the human person, Jesus laid that down for you. He didn't just die. He laid everything down for us who are in Christ. The depth and the gravity of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ is being highlighted here. He could have said zoane. He could have said bias, but he doesn't. He says pasuxi, and he did it on purpose. Now, verse 17, but if anyone has the world's goods, this is an idiomatic phrase, bias ton cosmon, it means the life of the world. The life of the world. This stuff. My jacket? It's June. My shirt. Right? My stuff. So if anyone has the stuff of life, because Jesus laid everything down, his whole person down for us, that if just this little stuff, you need my stuff. You need my stuff? Well, Jesus gave me everything, and I have everything in Jesus because Jesus reigns, and he's alive, and he gave me absolutely everything. The good news of the Gospels, what you get in the Gospel is God. The good news of the Gospels, you get Jesus. This is what we get in the Gospel. We get everything because we get Jesus, which means my stuff. You need my stuff. Have my stuff. I've got everything. Particularly what? If I see that you need it. And, and even the language here, I think he goes on, right? And closes his heart to them. I didn't know I could do that. <laughs> Look forward to that in the future. <sighs> it's Father's Day. That is cool. <laughs> Anyways, um, okay. The stuff. You have the stuff. 
You have everything. And they close your heart to them, right? So you give. How does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word and talk, though you should, right? But indeed and in truth. If I come home and say, I love you kids. No, you can't have any food. That would not be good. That's not love. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts. Oh, this is amazing, right? By this we know that we are of the truth and we should re- re- and reassure our hearts before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. You ever feel, as a Christian, like you have done something that God could not forgive you of? Or simply saying, I'm sorry to Jesus, does not cover. That you must do some work to pay him back in some way. Or that in some way you're doubting the reality of your salvation in him. Well, here's the good news. What he's saying here is our heart condemns us. That's you. God is greater than our heart. The reality of the gospel, what is true about you through the cross of Jesus Christ, is greater than the way you feel about yourself. Feelings are real. Feelings count. Feelings aren't facts. The fact is that if you belong to Jesus and you've repented of your sin and turned to him, you might not feel like you've done enough, but the reality is that you haven't done enough, but that Jesus Christ did plenty and he did enough on the cross for you on your behalf. And he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. He's bringing us back to reality. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. You can live a life that pleases God. 23. And this is his commandment. I told you we'd come back to it. That we believe in the name. This is, by the way, this is the whole point of 1 John. We're on holy ground. This is the point of 1 John, verse 23. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. We do his commandment. What's his commandment? Love Jesus, love people. Love Jesus, love people. Just as he commanded us, whoever keeps his commandment abides in God. How do we abide in God? He keeps saying, remain in God, remain in God, remain in God, abide in God, abide in God, abide in God. How? What? I want to do it. I want to, that sounds cool and spiritual and religious. How do I do it? How do I abide in God? You believe in the name, and in response to who he is, you love other people. That's what it is to live with God. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God, and God in him, and by this we know that he abides in us, by the spirit whom he has given us. So how do we navigate it? Love. How do, how do we navigate a hostile world? Love. That means the church has to be a radically different community. Right? Church is not a program. Church is not a meeting. Church is a people who love God and love others. Church, a church, a real church, a regular church, a true church, an orthodox church, is a church that loves Jesus and loves other people. We can have a lot of disagreements from there, but we love Jesus, so we believe His Word, we believe in His name, and we love other people. How do we navigate it? How do we get after this in the world? We make our life about Jesus and His Gospel. So how do we navigate a hostile world? Well, part of it is that we love each other. Part of it is that you and I make it our aim to be the people of God together. And at the end of the day, 
We can create avenues for that. People in the church can create avenues. People can open up Bible studies and community groups. But at the end of the day, we have to make that decision together to be the people of God together. We have to make that decision to make our community more than a program. We have to be the people of God together by actually loving one another, knowing one another, serving another, and, by the way, allowing ourselves to be served, allowing ourselves to be known, allowing ourselves to be loved. So how do we thrive? This is our question, right? How do we thrive then rather than survive? If I could make abide rhyme with survive, I would be in like Flint, but I can't. We abide. John gives us the answer to the question. We abide. We remain. We live. We're mindful of the world in which we live. We participate where we can, and we don't where we can't, because we're interested in abiding in him. I am at the point in my life where I'm, I'm blown away with the way certain things are, certain conveniences are, in the way that we love to be a part of what the world's doing, right? We want to be in with the cool kids, and we want to know what's going on. The reality is there's some stuff we just can't do to remain in Jesus, to love each other, to really remain in Jesus and be faithful and obedient to him. And I, I can't dictate what your conscience is. But man, we know what it looks like. You can't vote for sin and vote for Jesus at the same time, Right? I know everybody is watching that show. And you know what's in that show. I'm, I'm getting old. I, I would rather watch Fireproof again and again and again and again and honor the good Lord than be in with whatever show everyone's going to forget next week. Anybody remember the OC anymore? Nope. Gone. Great theme song. Gone. Doesn't matter how good the theme song was. Gone. You remember those actors anymore? Nope. It's fleeting. Just like everything else in the world. Right? We're mindful. We participate where we can. That, that's one of the things, even speaking of, of, of the people of God, as they were remaining, the, the, uh, the Egyptian exiles with the Ptolemies. Right? The guys who had left with Jeremiah set up their own little enclaves in places like Alexandria. Here's your lesson in, in diasporational, diasporational, diaspora history. And they participated where they could and, and refrained where they couldn't. And they did this in such a way, the Jews did this, that, that over history there'd be different guys like uh, Antiochus Epiphanes who knew what the people of God did and didn't do. Now these are Old Testament saints. These are Old Covenant guys. So they do different stuff than us. So they did things like say, you can't take Sunday off, because they were really serious about taking Sunday off. You gotta eat pork. We can eat pork, thank you, Jesus. Peter almost ruined it for us, but God, fortunately, is smarter than Peter. <laughs> I've never eaten anything unclean. Peter, I'm God. Oh yeah, I forgot. Remix, but that's pretty, Peter's not afraid to argue with God in the worst ways. Anyways, um, <laughs> so they have to, Work on Sunday, take a different day off. Eat pork, can't circumcise their children. Just things that mark them off as the people of God. And they said, Antiochus Epiphany said, no, you must stop doing these things. Now, they participated in culture as much as they could, but also there was a line. This has been true of the people of God. Joseph, 
End of Genesis? Abraham? Enoch, maybe? Abel? Maybe Abel? Participate where we can. We refrain where we can't. Abel's a bit of a stretch. I redact it. <clears throat> so what do we do? How do we thrive rather than survive? We love Jesus and we love each other. We're, we're in the world. Just like he says in 1 Corinthians 5. You can't get out of the scene, man. We could go start a compound and the next thing you know, here we are. And here we are. And we live in a compound. Land's expensive. It'd have to be somewhere horrible. Anyways, I digress. No compound. No compound. Not even suggesting it. Probably shouldn't joke about it. But at the end of the day, our community becomes an apologetic for the love of Christ. We're faithful to him. We're faithful to his word. And we're faithful to each other in the midst of hostility. We have to get... If things get, keep getting turned up, the church has to be more the church. The cost is going to go up. The cost of discipleship will go up. And the beautiful thing is, when guys write books like Cost of Discipleship, like Dietrich Bonhoeffer did, sometimes they do crazy stuff. The Nazis are coming in and saying, Mein Kampf have to sit, has to sit in the pulpit right next to the Bible. Dietrich Bonhoeffer's safe in New York. And what does he do? He goes home to Germany to start an underground seminary. Now, that is how you take being a bad dude and being a Bible nerd and you put them together in one and you have an underground seminary and you're Dietrich Bonhoeffer and you become my hero because you've managed to be a Bible nerd and a bad dude at the same time. Owa was almost named Dietrich. Lucky boy, he's not. So our community becomes an apologetic for the love of Christ. The way we live demonstrates and is evidence that Jesus reigns. I mean, I, again, I, I can't help but think of the brothers and sisters in South Carolina right now. I don't know if you know the whole story at this point in time, but since the guy came in and shot the Bible study up, they sent him a video in jail. Have you followed this? This is amazing. And in the video, they say a couple of things. And on the list is, we really did mean it that we enjoyed you. We told you we enjoyed you being here with us to hear about God and his word, and we meant it. And then they say to him, this guy who's killed their family, we forgive you, and we want you to know the Lord Jesus Christ. The world hates, the church loves. That's how we'll be known. That's how we navigate the hostility. We don't return reviling for reviling. As the world hates, we love. Do not be surprised, brothers, sisters, when the world hates you. But know who you are, the people of God. So what do we do? Verse 23. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. And love one another just as He has commanded us. That's how we navigate a hostile world. That's how you fight a culture war. You love Jesus. You love other people. You fight it on your knees, praying to the good Lord for the souls of those people who are throwing rocks at you. That's how you do it. If you don't know Jesus, this is our radical message. That we know God through His Son, Jesus, who has reconciled us to Himself. And I would plead with you, a people who love God and love each other in all circumstances are evidence of his reality 
You have sinned against God. God has come to save you. All you have to do to become a Christian is turn to him. You can't earn it. You can't get cleaned up. You can't put on your Sunday best. You can't start doing spiritual push-ups. It's not that you start reading your Bible. It's not that you start praying. It's that you receive Jesus and his grace and mercy for you. And I would implore you today to receive his love. For those of us who are the church, believe in his name, love one another. Uh, we're about to transition to communion as we do this. This is a, this is a celebration. This is a celebration of the reality of Jesus Christ. Um, logistically, what we're looking at, this is uh, uh, gluten-free on the far side, normal bread in the middle, uh, juice and wine according to your conscience, and a basket for the offering for the work of the ministry. Um, we celebrate communion. When we celebrate communion, not only do we celebrate it every week, we celebrate communion because communion is our celebration that Jesus laid down his life for us. That we could know and love God, not because of anything we've done, but everything that he has done. So when you're ready, as Paul commands, we consider our sin, we turn to him, we, we repent, we, we ask for forgiveness, but when we stand up, we stand up to celebrate and to praise his holy name for everything that he has done. So when you're ready, go ahead and stand up. Uh, take a look at We're going to stand, we're going to sing, we're going to get our kids from Kismas, they're going to come in here and sing, and we're going to have a good time. I'm going to pray for us. <sighs> Lord, um, Lord, I pray first and foremost that you would be the comforter of those that have worked through this tragedy, living through this tragedy. It's fresh and new. They're still living through the tragedy. Uh, but I also thank you that you have made them strong. And they have overcome the evil in the world. They have, they have moved and been bold in the gospel in the midst of their own suffering. Help us, Lord God, to have strength and confidence Help us to remember that what we have is the best news we've ever heard and that we would share that best news that we've ever heard with everybody else. And help us to, in the midst of, a, of, of tension and hostility that we've already been promised is going to happen in the Bible, has been happening ultimately for 2,000 years, that we would know you, love you, serve you, proclaim your name, and love each other. Jesus, we love you and pray these things for your glory and for our joy. In your name, Jesus Christ, amen.